Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. With Florida's population on the rise, we're taking a look at how we're adapting. Zoning. It sounds mundane, but in reality, it is anything but. Zoning and building regulations affect us intimately because they hit us where we live. Joining us today to discuss this topic, Peter Belmont is vice president of Preserve the Berg, the nonprofit that promotes historic preservation in St. Petersburg. Tyler Hudson is a land use and real estate attorney. He's a member of the Urban Land Institute and last year served as the chairman of All for Transportation, the referendum to raise the sales tax in order to fund county transportation. And Van Linkus is here. She's the assistant professor of urban and regional planning at the University of South Florida. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So zoning is a balancing act um, between preservation, growth, controlling growth, housing costs, private property rights. Everybody has their priorities. What I'm curious about is how we rank those priorities. Tyler, what's your idea on that? That's tough. I mean, I, I think that zoning is sometimes a bit static, whereas the, the things that affect zoning, like population growth, transportation, uh, really fundamental principles of equity, th- those are really dynamic and they change a lot, especially in a place like uh, Hillsborough County or Tampa. I think sometimes the discussion about affordability, we talk about zoning, is, is we sometimes narrow in on things too specifically, but it's really a, a broad, more holistic conversation. I mean, zoning is tied to transportation. We talk about affordable housing. Well, that's tied to workforce development. So you really need to look at them all together. But what you kept talking about there was affordability. So it was sort of like that's maybe the I issue. think that's the best lens to really wrap things around. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you look at affordability, look at the sources of your income and your uses. I mean, we, we talk about workforce development. We want to raise the incomes of people here. Uh, but then look at the uses of what, what people spend their, their income on. For too many people, too much of that money, I think, is spent on transportation, spent on housing costs. And I think that has a disincentive on our growth here and on our ability to, to retain people. It's things that we're working on. I think the all for transportation's passage was a, a really sort of resounding vote of confidence yeah, in the congratulations future. Congratulations on that, Oh, Tyler. thank you. I mean, it was thanks to the 282,000 <laughs> people who voted for it. Um, I think that was a resounding vote of confidence in the future. There's still a lot, of, a lot of work to be done, I think, especially on the land development and zoning side. Peter, would I be wrong to guess what your priority is as vice president of Preserve the Berg? I don't think you would be wrong, and I think preservation is a very important component of our growth management, of our zoning, and oftentimes forgotten. Historic districts can be very important, and uh, I think we should be encouraging the creation of more historic districts in our Bay Area. There are many studies now from a variety of communities that show historic districts are productive areas of our community. They're resilient, and when I mean resilient, I talk about during downturns in the economy, they oftentimes do better, and they are very livable, and I think that's a very important point for today's discussion. There's a great deal of what we refer to as hidden density within historic districts or older portions of our community, 
And historic districts are not just for the well-off. Most historic districts are home to a very wide range of uh, members of our community. They're diverse from income to race to ethnicity. So I think it's important to look at the historic district question. The historic districts, a lot of times, they were built up before we had some modern zoning regulations for single-family housing. So a lot of times you will find more affordable housing in historic districts. This is my impression because you've got multifamily units and duplexes and triplexes, things like that. Van, what about that? Do we need more historic districts? A lot of people would say no because they're very restrictive in what you can do once you buy a house there. Historic districts offer choice. And that's, I think, one of the things that planning conceptualizes zoning as really doing. Historic districts usually offer something that's really different and something that can offer affordability, culture. I think one of the really important things about them is they offer an authentic place. And I think a lot of people are looking around Florida and saying, what's authentic here? And that really matters as people move in, as people stay longer. Uh, So historic districts offer something really unique that nowhere else can offer. But a historic district means restrictions. It means that its historic district is a, the whole reason you want to designate it that is because you can't tear your house down and build a mid-century modern, you know, a copy of a mid-century modern home. Um, you can't just add things willy-nilly. You can't paint it the color that you might. You might love bright purple, but you've got restrictions in that neighborhood. Doesn't this trample on private property rights, Tyler? You're an attorney. Um, It it depends. I I live in one of these districts. I live in Tampa Heights uh, in the portion that's actually in a federal historic district. And, you know, we, we need to honor history, but I don't think we need to become prisoners to it. I think there's a way to be to be flexible to ensure that you, you honor the documented history of a district without really preventing development. I mean, I think Tampa Heights is one of the more interesting neighborhoods. I'm, I'm biased, obviously, but I think it's one of the more interesting neighborhoods in, in the Tampa Bay area right now because it, it is a historic, very diverse neighborhood that's really being buffeted by a lot of the changes that are happening in, in Tampa. I mean, downtown is creeping north, uh, and we're seeing some urban infill projects that, that some folks in the historic preservation community are not thrilled with. So it's, you know, like with anything, it's it's certainly a balancing act. But if you're in a federal historic district, the city of Tampa, for example, has an architectural review commission that reviews projects and ensures that they meet certain design standards. And so, you know, I think it's a balance. I don't think it's necessarily a deprivation of a property right. But the interesting thing you have in a neighborhood like a Tampa Heights, where a portion is in some type of recognized historical district, other portions are not, how you harmonize their growth together. So it doesn't look, uh, you know, something antiquated on one side and, and too modern on the other. You need to really kind of blend it. And that's subjective. A blending is subjective. Architectural standards is subjective. You know, Peter, people want the charm of a neighborhood preserved. They want. They don't want to destroy the characteristics that made them fall in love with an area in the first place. That's easy to understand. But, you know, that presents its own hardships. Um, this was from a recent WUSF story. This is Matt Widener. Um, an attorney who represents a resident trying to demolish and rebuild his home in the historic Driftwood neighborhood. He said preservationists don't take individual rights into consideration. Quote, one of the most frustrating things about the preservation argument and debate is that the proponents of preservation have no concern whatsoever for the financial consequences of individuals, he said. How do you answer that? I personally do know Matt. I mean, I think uh, Matt has a, a wonderful uh, office in an historic building in, in downtown St. Pete. 
I think there's a misperception oftentimes about what historic designation means. What I typically say is historic designation means that we are going to encourage the reuse of the older buildings and discourage their demolition. Regulations differ from community to community, so most local governments have their own individual historic preservation program. You mentioned, you know, purple and paint color, for example. St. Petersburg will not regulate your paint color in your historic district. There are some local governments that look at that. Um, many do not. But it's a process that will provide a review that does not otherwise happen. And I think the goal is to have a neighborhood that remains special. And Robin, I would argue that there are community rights that have been carefully thought out when these districts are adopted. And the, the community, um, those who live there and those who will be directly affected, as well as those who, who may work there, visit there, play there, are part of the adoption of these and, and think through the uh, parameters that's, that are involved. So these are, are really unique attributes, and the community has decided that they want to protect them. So there, there are community rights that are at stake here as well. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I also think that I've been through the Architectural Review Commission process myself. And so I sympathize with people who find it frustrating because it can be. Um, so it is important to create, I think, safe harbors that there are certain things that you can do in a community that do not require extensive regulation or approval. And one of the most important things that I think, for example, the city of Tampa could do is, is better document what has been permitted in the past so that there is some measure of, of equal enforcement and, and equal protection of these design standards because uh, it can happen that you'll have somewhat varying interpretations really in a matter of months for very similar projects. I think when, when, when things like that happen, that allows a, a frustration to get, you know, get a bit worse and fester and, and frankly kind of can pose a bit of a threat to preservation efforts. So we're recording this right before the legislative session ends. Are, are you following the bills um, in the state legislature right now that would prohibit cities from imposing mandatory affordable housing requirements? I think what you're seeing from Tallahassee is a very constant yo-yo effect of, of preemption. If, if there is something going on in the local government that doesn't meet with the expectations of the party in power, um, then there's a big effort to preempt all of that power to local government. You see it with vegetable gardens, you see it with affordable housing. So I guess one of the things that they're trying to keep from happening is something called inclusionary zoning. Inclusionary zoning means if you want to develop somewhere, you have to set aside 10 or 15 percent or some percentage of that development to, quote, affordable housing. This is from a marketplace story about Atlanta. Quote, developers like Tim Schrager say it's hard to get any project financed, especially where developers have to tell investors they'll need to give up revenue on as many as 15 percent of units built. Quote, I don't think that the electricians and the framers are going to start reducing the cost of their labor because of inclusionary zoning, Schrager said. So can we see a downside of that kind of zoning ban? Is there, are there, you know, cons to that? Well, we know uh, as planners, we know that New Jersey has had inclusionary zoning standards for quite some time that they are, are very strict in enforcing statewide. And growth hasn't slowed down there, and they're able to build housing. The issues that they're better able to address then are workforce housing, housing for teachers, housing for the police force. So this is something that, that has worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And talking about it in terms of cost is, isn't something that should be shied away from. I mean, we I see this frequently that uncertainty, governmental uncertainty and, and delay, that can kill deals. And so to the point about this costing developers more, 
I think we need to talk about that. Well, how do how do you offset that? Because the sometimes the transactional costs of excessively long permitting periods and review periods, fixing some of those things can make it easier. I think for developers to to comply with his type of set aside requirements, but I think there's there's no question that's generally where things are going. Yeah, so I would just point out that sometimes when you look at at balancing, if you want to call it the added cost, that the developer may also be getting a bonus for providing that affordable housing. So perhaps there will be some greater density allowed than would otherwise be permitted for that development site. Yeah, so but looking at it from the other way, I'm new to this game, right? I'm not a developer. I'm not in planning. I'm not in zoning. So I just look at this and say, it sounds like extortion to me. I mean, I, I don't want to use hyperbole, but it's kind of like the mob. I mean, if you want to build here, you'd better set aside 10% for housing. Or if you want to build this condo, that's great. But now you need to renovate this other building over here. I mean, if you look at it in one way, it's saying if you want a certain density, you've got to pay up. And that's got to hit certain developers as unfair. Yeah, I think there's, there's, there's no question it does. I, I think we need to work backwards, though, from what, what, what is the goal? I mean, if the goal is to create, for example, in Tampa, a place where not just folks ordering $30 entrees can live, but the folks who are cleaning those dishes later in the night, then you're, you're going to have to make incentives to create affordable housing near, for example, the downtown core. That's the incentive. But to Peter's point, there are certainly incentives that cities can can give that can offset that or, or, or make it more attractive. I mean, the bonus density is definitely one thing, being able to go um, go higher, for example, in, in a building to put more units in, which are more easy able to finance and pay for your project. That's a huge thing. Uh, parking minimums, I think that's something that the city is going to have to look at in a big way. Uh, for example, in Tampa Heights, my house happens to have a, a two-car garage in it, and we're trying to turn it into a family room. We don't really want a room for our, our cars. Um, and for new construction in Tampa Heights, you need to have a place for two cars. That's a that's a huge problem that uh, the city's going to have to address. Yeah, I'm, well, I definitely want to get into that in just a moment. I wanted to just go back to that inclusionary zoning for one second, because in that marketplace story that I was quoting before, they said, stop development. They had explosive growth along this um, park, and there was a lot of, you know, it was a very desirable area for development, and then they created the inclusionary zones, and that put a stop to it. But Van, you're saying you don't think that that happens. Well, like Tyler, I think that inclusionary zoning policies and provisions to include affordable housing projects are usually accompanied by some sort of incentives or ways to to help make the development project get off the ground from a development perspective. But these things are policy and they are put in place to make sure that the market helps communities achieve their long-term quality of life goals. So we've seen in Florida what highly speculative markets that are based on, on the development push yield, and it's not a good outcome for the citizens of Florida. So I think these regulations are really intended at providing a balancing act and making sure that people will have housing that will work in the long term for a wide variety of Floridians. I was looking at some recent information. By 2025, up to 85% of households will be childless. By 2020, 34% of households will consist of a single person. And we know in Florida that a lot of those folks will be older. Uh, We also are making way for millennials who are going to shape our economic development. So these people need the housing choices and early career or fixed income retirees are not necessarily going to be able to afford some of the kinds of speculative investments. So I think it's good good policy when provisions are made to allow a broader uh, spectrum of the population to have choices. Well, it's interesting because it's either top down or bottom up. So so you're saying it's, you know, we're going to have all these 
these different kinds of families. So the government needs to think about that and sort of like push developers into making those housing. But why not, if we're going to have those different kinds of people, that's what they're going to demand, right? So that's bottom up. If they want, you know, people want multi-family housing, they want tiny housing. If the market demands it, why does the government have to come in and say, this is what you have to build? And I think the development community is recognizing this need. We're seeing the town centers with some of the, the mixed use, the the multifamily housing. A big topic today is the missing middle, which is sort of the bungalow style housing, the the quadplexes, the duplexes that really are on the scale of walkable um, single-family housing and can be intermixed in communities so you can live next to your aging parents uh, or or these kinds of flexible... Put the tiny house in the backyard. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I think the the market is is catching up and good planning policies can support that. Yeah, and quadplexes, I think, are a great example. Minneapolis just uh, essentially upzoned the entire city and, and there are is no longer uh, a zoning district in, in Minneapolis for which single family is is the most you can do. You can now do quadplexes as a, as a matter of right. And, uh, and those are littered throughout my neighborhood. I think they're great. Um, I wish we had more of them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, Peter, you might know something about this, but it does seem like cities are trying to get away from this single family home zoning regulations. Um, because those laws maybe discourage infill and they discourage the multifamily units that would provide more housing and bring some housing costs down. But how do you balance that with preservation? Well, I, th- I think in many ways when we are talking about doing those things, we're looking at how we did develop in the past. And so when we look at older neighborhoods, as I mentioned earlier, they do have that mix of housing. They will have some single family. They will have multifamily. Yeah, so it's, so, not, it's um, not really a problem in historic neighborhoods, I guess. But in the new suburbs or new neighborhoods... They're still very strongly sticking to that single-family zoning, right, Tyler? Yeah, but I think you're seeing sort of a retrenchment from that. I mean, cheap energy prices abetted a very suburban land development pattern in in Hillsborough County that that went on for multiple generations. And now I think you're seeing people want to move a little bit back into a city environment, into a walkable environment. And that's not to say that downtown Tampa is the only place you can have a vibrant, walkable community. You can have that anywhere. And I think you're seeing some efforts at at sprawl repair that are notable. But we we can talk about it in terms of values and equity and things like that. And that's an important conversation to have. But I I think you can also talk about this in just the cold, hard reality of the fact that 700,000 people are going to move to Hillsborough County in the next 30 years. They're not all going to want to live in large tract single family homes. We need to find somewhere to put them. So that means the further you get out from the downtown core, maybe it's a little bit harder to -hmm. to go vertical. But in in the proximate neighborhoods to Tampa's downtown and other economic centers, you need to be able to put meaningful density in place. Right. So we're hearing that a lot. So what's the obstacle to changing that single family zoning law? Van. Actually, in this area, the city of Tampa has, has really uh, led the charge in allowing a lot of, of development and increased density downtown. A lot of this area is uh, zoned for much more than it's currently accommodated. So it's up to the development community to make this happen and for um, communities to be willing to accept, I think, some new density, which is a challenge. I think that's it. I think it's more the mindset of people. They want, you know, the house and the yard, and they don't want to maybe see a big apartment building going up next door or even a duplex because, you know, it changes the character of their neighborhood they bought into. And I think that's changing. I think one place where I'm seeing um, a lot of change is Seminole Heights uh, locally, where you're seeing increased density. And I think the community is generally accepting that. They want to figure out how transportation works in that context, how parking works in that context. But this community recognizes that they're on the the boundary of growth, and that's going to happen. And other communities are going to say, no, 
we want to be single family, and that's okay. And I think that's one of the, the great things about zoning. It lets a community kind of define where it wants to go and what it wants to be. What I'm hearing you say is that communities need to pay attention. I mean, you know, maybe they do have more power than they think over their zoning regulations. But when things come up at the Zoning Regulation Commission, they may not not know about it. So they need to make their voice heard. There's no question that the most powerful title you can have is a citizen, because I've seen it at city council hearings, uh, projects that, um, you know, some some good, maybe some less good can be made or broken by by who shows up. And if you don't show up, I think you have uh, really less of a right to complain. I would just like to come back to whether you want to call it choice a, a little bit or not. But I mean, I think there have been a variety of studies now in a number of communities. Uh, Raleigh, North Carolina is one that comes to my mind. And uh, one of those conclusions about the mix for the community is that younger people are turning more and more to those older buildings and older neighborhoods. And for a variety of reasons, uh, again, the diversity, the economics, uh, being close to transportation. So I think the more we can encourage some of those values, the more you'll find that those areas are attractive. So architect Mickey Jacob has said on this show that parking regulations are the biggest problem and, and housing solutions like micro housing can't get built um, because of these darn parking regulations. And I, I think I heard you mention that, Tyler. I, I think there needs to be a, a, a war on parking regulations there. I think that this is such a dynamic place right now. I think it is the most most exciting time you could possibly have to live in Tampa. But our zoning code is, is, is fairly static, and it can be a little bit difficult to change. And so, for example, if you're building an apartment complex, you need to have one visitor parking space for every four units. I mean, that's generally based on a townhome concept. So you're over, you're creating these complexes that are an island and a sea of parking. Downtown recently made a change. It was a good change. It was a very specific change saying that if you're, if you're a, quote, micro apartment, which I think it's 530 or 580 square feet or less, you only have to have a uh, Point five, a half uh, of space. That's right, and, and you know, I think calling it micro apartments are funny, and in most other places, you'd call that an apartment at five hundred thirty square feet. That's a good, very specific change to make. But we, we need to look at it, I think, a, a lot more broadly. But the key to that is having transportation options. I, I think you can't just yank parking minimums you know, citywide or, or, or countywide until some of this transportation starts to come in. But thanks to the voters, that, that is going to start to change. And so along corridors, Florida, Nebraska, Tampa, Columbus, I mean, a, a lot of different commercial corridors that are going to see more public transit options I think for development that are within a certain proximity to transit stops, you can look at certainly reducing or even eliminating parking minimums. You think that'll happen? Yes, it has to. There are some communities that are starting to look at that. So traditionally, we've had the zoning code require the minimum number of parking spaces per type of use. Some have begun to say maybe it shouldn't be a minimum, but a maximum that the code should provide. And parking, indeed, is very expensive uh, infrastructure to provide. St. Petersburg right now for uh, its Central Avenue corridor is looking at reducing parking requirements as being one of the incentives to uh, bring about the form development that they prefer. But if I was a restaurant downtown and in the evening people that wanted to come to my restaurant couldn't find a parking spot because the people that lived in the apartment buildings didn't have parking spaces, so they were taking all the available parking around my restaurant, I would be upset. Well, we're seeing that the alternatives are taking the place and are more convenient. And I think that's the key. The, the parking and the transportation situation to get people out of their cars has to be convenient and desirable. But we're seeing options like Uber, um, the Cross Bay Ferry that just went permanent that allows folks to enjoy 
activities and culture, either on the Tampa side or the St. Pete side, these are becoming more and more attractive. And it's it's nicer to let someone else drive or take a boat ride. So I think that's the question that we're dealing with in Florida. We're too big to continue the traditional mix of land use and transportation options. And we're going to keep facing this dilemma and some hard decisions are going to have to be made, um, both in the urban context and in the more rural context. I've been watching a little bit more closely the toll road extension bill uh, that's working its way through the legislature at the moment. And, and this is another place where are we going to grow through expanding highway capacity or are we going to look at some other meaningful alternatives? Yeah, I think, Robin, the, the hypothetical restaurant owner you mentioned, I mean, that, that type of frustration, I think, is somewhat pervasive and understandable in a place like Tampa that I think is really learning how to grow into being a big city. And because so many people in, in that live here in Tampa are, are not from here, they either spent some time elsewhere or they, they came from away, people know that it can be better. People know that you can have vibrant, walkable communities and that there there is no right to free parking. There is no right to having the meters turned off on Sunday. Those are old habits that I think our, our population growth is going to demand we move away from. Van, you know, with citrus being so much less than it was, we see our rural areas in danger of some willy-nilly sprawl. I think you were just kind of referring to that fear with the toll roads going through. And people don't like the idea of losing their green space. But you wrote about Sarasota's award-winning growth plan, which you've studied in depth. It sounded perfect. It talked about clustered population and green spaces. It sounded great. It passed. And then what happened? It came to a standstill. Yeah, the I think incrementally development kept pushing further and further into areas that people had said they wanted to be protected. So once again, it's about communities saying, these are the resources that we want to protect. The case study that I wrote about is about Sarasota 2050, which is their plan for how they're going to deal with the rural area outside of their urban service area. I know Hillsborough is dealing with some similar questions now. How do you do this and how do you do it well? It's, it's a difficult question and there's a lot of different issues here. So we know that climate change may limit the viability for folks to live in our urban areas, which are primarily coastal. So thinking hard about whether development in rural areas is appropriate at this point in time in Florida is absolutely, this is the time to start doing that. I'm a conservationist by training, a land conservationist by training, um, which actually has a lot of similarities to preservation or, um, in the historic preservation context. So we really need to think hard about What are the sensitive environmental areas? What are the agricultural resources that we really want to protect? And then think about whether there are good ways to accommodate some forms of development. Yeah, I think when we talk about those questions, um, you mentioned I'm active in the Urban Land Institute. They've done some great work. We're not the first people to encounter these problems. I mean, mention agriculture. The ULI did a great uh, report on, on what they call agri-hoods, and using some in Virginia, for example. We dealt with this on the transportation campaign. And sometimes this going against this belief that Tampa and Hillsborough are somehow so unique that what works elsewhere can't work here. Uh, that is not true. Uh, we, we are not the first community to struggle with balancing urban-rural divides or providing better affordable options. Uh, there are other places that do it. Tyler Hudson is a land use and real estate attorney, a member of the Urban Land Institute, and last year served as chairman of All for Transportation. Peter Belmont is vice president of Preserve the Burg, the nonprofit that promotes historic preservation in St. Petersburg. And Van Linkus is an assistant professor of urban and regional planning at the University of South Florida. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. You can find us on Twitter at Florida Matters, and Florida Matters is available as a podcast. It's another great way to listen whenever it's convenient for you. Search for it wherever you get your podcasts. 
or go to our website, WUSF.org, and click the Listen tab. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is Richard Jimenez. This week's producer is Mary Shedden. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.